What does a wedding banquet filled with joy and celebration that suddenly runs out of wine and a temple filled with people buying and selling, what does all that have to do with a clear understanding of Jesus? Two scenes challenging us to let go of empty tradition and misplaced devotion. Two scenes showing us that Jesus came to fill what is empty and replace what is broken. Two scenes inviting us into something new, into something better. Let's look at it together in John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 uh, or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with wine. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and, and take it to the master of the feast. And, and so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, the cheap stuff. <laughs> but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip out of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your spirit that brings illumination, that turns the lights on, that helps bring understanding and clarity. And so we pray, Father, that you would do that work today in our hearts. That, Lord, you would encourage, that you would instruct, that you would build our faith up, that we would see Jesus for who he is, that we would see your glory in the face of your son, Jesus. 
Here we are. Father, we're wanting to learn the ways of Jesus together. Teach us today. Lord, would you give us a humble posture, this desire to receive all that you have. In Jesus' name, amen. Three things this morning for us, church. One, Jesus came to fill what is empty. Two, he came to replace what is broken. And three, he came to invite us into something new, something better. First, Jesus came to fill what is empty. One of the first things Jesus does with his newly formed group of disciples is attend a wedding banquet. Cana is is not too far from Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. I want want us to think just obscure, podunk, small town of Cana. Now this could have been a relative, it could have been a close friend of of Jesus' family. Jesus' mother is there. She has responsibility, it seems, at this banquet of some kind. She's very concerned about their wine. Wedding banquets uh, were a big deal in Jesus' day. They lasted days, up to a week, actually, at times. And they're, they're a big deal to us. They represent so much in our culture. But here's what happens at this wedding feast. In verse 3, we find out that they run out of wine, and we might think, that's no big deal. Well, they couldn't just run to the store and get more wine. Um, But even if they couldn't, we we still might think, well, again, what's the big deal? You ran out of wine. But this was about etiquette. This was about honor. And so running out of wine was beyond embarrassing. It it was actually extremely offensive to those in attendance, and it would damage the reputation of the host and of uh, the the bride and the groom and, and their families. And so there's a lot at stake here. They have no wine. They have no wine. This is what Mary brought to Jesus. She brought this emergency situation to Jesus. Did, now, did she expect a miracle? Did she expect him to do something supernatural? She expected him to do something. She brought this unexpected need to Jesus. And his response in verse 4, we read it, and it feels a bit harsh. Right? We could read it again. Uh, where it says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, men, I I do not recommend quoting this verse to your wives. (laughs) If your wife asks you to do the dishes, don't be like, woman, what does this have to do with me? She'll tell you what it has to do with you. (laughs) This, This is not disrespectful. What he's saying here, in in English, it feels like harsh and disrespectful. It's not. It doesn't lack affection. It is a bit formal, and it is sincere. And he addresses her the same way when he's hanging on the cross in John 19. It really, we could translate it this way, dear woman, dear woman. And he's saying, what's this got to do with me? My hour or my time has not yet come. So Jesus hadn't fully launched into what would be his public ministry. And he knew where his public ministry would lead him. That hour, that time, it would take him to a cross. It would lead to his crucifixion, where he would be the atoning sacrifice for our sin, for the sin of the world. But his hour, his his time had not yet come. In verse 5, she says, okay, 
do whatever he tells you. She is demonstrating trust. We don't have a lot of words from Mary, Jesus' mother. But here, when she says, do whatever he tells you, it's a demonstration of trust. One author writes, she didn't know what Jesus would do, but she knows he'll do the right thing. You might say it this way. It might be difficult to understand. You might not have all your questions answered. What he says to you might be hard. It might seem unreasonable, even ridiculous. But do what he says. You can trust him. You can trust Jesus. Do whatever he tells you. It's a demonstration of trust. There were six large stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. They're likely used to clean their, the guest's hands and, and utensils and, and vessels of, of various kinds for the ceremony. You can read more about um, this tradition um, that the Jews practiced in Mark chapter 7. I encourage you to do that and how Jesus rebukes them. The Pharisees, the religious leaders were all bent out of shape because Jesus' disciples weren't washing their hands and, and performing these traditions of, of men. And Jesus says, look, you're, you're taking the traditions of, of man and you're making them a commandment of the Lord and then you're avoiding the commandments of the Lord. It wasn't a good thing. But here they were, these Jewish rites of purification, these jars that were there for that purpose. And the servants listen to Jesus and they fill the jars with water. They draw the water out and take it to the master of the banquet. And by the way, the master of the banquet knew good wine from cheap wine. But they bring this, this water to the master of the banquet and, and it was customary to, fir- to first serve the good stuff. And after the party was going on for some time, then bring out the cheap stuff. But this, <laughs> this is exquisite. What the master of the banquet discovers is that this is the best wine. The best. The best was saved for last. He calls the groom over and he compliments him. You, you saved the best for last. Well done. Who does this? All the while, Jesus' disciples and the servants knew what had happened. This water had become wine. It was a miracle. Jesus had transformed the water that was placed in the purification jars. He transformed it into new wine. Now in verse 11 is where we discover that this real life event, this true story is a sign And John says it's the first of his signs. A sign? Throughout the Gospel of John, John will slow down and highlight for us different signs. And a sign, when he talks about a sign, John John does this throughout, and, and he's inviting us, the reader, to pay attention to specific events, specific miracles within Jesus's ministry that serve as signs. And the purpose of a sign is to, is to point to something beyond the sign itself, right? And so the signs that John is holding up, that Jesus does, it reveals something previously unseen and unknown about Jesus. And so it's important for us as we read these stories to slow down and consider these signs. No one should be content with the sign itself. No one says, you know, I was heading to the beach but this sign pointing 
the way to the beach? Yeah, that'll do. Let's just throw our blankets down, put the umbrella up, set up our picnic right here under the sign. No one does that. What is the sign saying? What is the sign testifying? What is the sign pointing to? What is it saying specifically about Jesus' identity and his purpose? You know, the Old Testament commonly compares God to a bridegroom and Israel to his bride. And so the wedding banquet symbolizes this end-time saving work of God through this coming Messiah, through this coming anointed one, this king, God's chosen one when God will rescue and restore his bride, Israel. And so these hopes are are just overflowing in the hearts of, of the Jews. They're waiting and anticipating how God will act, how God will actually fulfill his promise to provide this anointed one, this Messiah. And his arrival will be like a banquet. And wine in the Old Testament is a symbol of joy and celebration. Not drunkenness, but wine. Wine is a symbol of joy and celebration. It's a sign of God's blessing. And so Jesus, he he decided to begin his public ministry this way. It's a symbolic announcement to his disciples that this long-awaited-for day of salvation is here. The feast that they've been waiting for has arrived. Jesus filled the purification jars of Judaism with new wine. Here's what he's saying as he does this. He's essentially saying, I, I, came, I came to fill up the emptiness of your traditions. I, I came to fulfill the longings of Judaism, of your hearts. The Old Testament law, including every purification rite, finds its fulfillment in Jesus. The Jews set up elaborate purification rites that went far beyond actually what the Old Testament law prescribed or required. These became traditions of men. And, and, and Jesus is saying, I came to fill what is empty. I came to fulfill what was promised. I came to bring true cleansing. There's a new way to be cleansed. These purification rites are empty. There's a new joy to be found. The promised wedding banquet has begun. He's saying the old order of things has, has, is being replaced with the new. Water is being turned to wine. The best has been saved for last. Or you could say it this way. The kingdom of God is at hand. He said that as well. Let's pause and just really consider the effect that Jesus had on the water that day. And now let's pause and consider the effect that Jesus had on the wedding, on the servants, on the people's lives. What was the effect? Total transformation. Here, John is pulling back the veil. He's giving us a glimpse. He's giving us a clue by holding up this sign which he says is a manifestation or a demonstration of Jesus' glory. Now, glory is who he is. It's a demonstration of Jesus' glory. The banquet has begun. 
This end time salvation that you've been waiting for is here. And as the wedding party continued on and the guests drank that exquisite wine, I imagine the disciples just standing off to the side in awe, just shaking their heads, just rubbing their hair, thinking to themselves, oh my, could this be? And it says they believed. His disciples believed in him. I'm sure they couldn't help but watch the wedding party before them with tear-filled eyes thinking, look at this joy. Look at the lack of shame in this room. Look what Jesus has done. Look what he's begun. He came to fill what is empty. Second, he came to replace what is broken. The next scene that John presents to us is that of Jesus going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And and I believe these two scenes are are put next to each other in the Gospel of John on purpose. From the start to tell us something about who Jesus is and his purpose. So Jesus goes to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. The Passover is a festival commemorating the deliverance of Israel out of Egyptian slavery. If you don't know about the Passover, you can read Exodus 12. I I encourage you, read the story of the Passover. This is about when that angel passed over, when the angel brought judgment on Egypt and, and God delivered them out of Egyptian slavery after 400 years plus of Egyptian slavery through Moses. Remember, God did this. But it's called Passover because the angel that brought judgment passed over the homes of those who took a lamb sacrificed the lamb and put the blood of this lamb over the doorposts and then ate the lamb in haste. It's called Passover. Don't forget the imagery of the lamb. It's hard to. But in this feast that they would celebrate, there was feasting, there was sacrifice, there was prayer, there was worship, there was remembering God's faithfulness and deliverance. And so here Jesus is, he goes to the temple, and the temple in Jesus' day was massive, massive. Herod the Great began rebuilding the temple in 20 BC, and it wasn't finished until 64 AD. And so here is this beautiful and monumental place of worship. Herod did this partly just to pacify the Jews. But nonetheless, this was a place of worship It was a symbol of Jewish national and religious identity. The temple is the center of life and culture for the Jews. This is the place of God's special presence. This is the place of sacrifice. But it has become something else entirely. And so it's important for us to understand the temple. You have the temple proper, where you have the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant and all that. And then you have, beyond that, the court for Jewish men to worship and to pray. And then beyond that court, which was a large court, was for Jewish men and women. And then beyond that court was yet another court for Jewish men, women, and Gentiles, non-Jews. And this is where the vendors were most likely set up. Now, when I say vendors, what do I mean? Those who were there selling animals for sacrifice, collecting temple tax, And she had the money changers, and you had people selling uh, oxen and and pigeons and and, and, and all kinds of uh, animals for sacrifice. And Jesus arrives 
And here they are, taking up space in an area that is meant for prayer. Ugly, broken things were happening, abuses and distortions, all in the name of God. Does that sound familiar? And what Jesus does next is both prophetic symbolism and public protest. Because remember where he is. He's in the center of their culture, like in the public square of their day. So it is prophetic symbolism. He's acting out like the prophets of old something that is, it is communicating truth to those around him and to us today. And it is public protest. Oh yeah, Jesus was involved in some public protest. He fashions a whip of some kind very quickly. Probably grabs some reeds of some kind and begins to drive out the animals. He overturns the tables of the money changers. This is dramatic. It is, it's provocative. It's upsetting. If you were worshiping, if you were trying to pray, if you were trying to purchase something, you would have been disturbed. You might have been bumped into. It was a commotion. It drew people's attention, and that's the point. There's prophetic symbolism here. There's public protest here. This isn't an outburst of uncontrolled anger on Jesus' part. This is intentional in every way. And here's what he says. Don't make my father's house my father's house. Don't, don't make my father's house a house of trade, a house of commerce. That's not what this is for. That's not what this is about. Look what you've done to this place. We read this, and as I read this over the week, I thought, man, how often do I think of Jesus as a man of courage? It took courage to do this, to stand up in the midst of everyone, to do these things. John says his disciples remembered a passage of Scripture in verse 17 They remembered Psalm 69, verse 9. Zeal for your house will consume me. Oh, Jesus was filled with zeal, with passion. A deep passion for his Father's honor and glory. It was his priority. Is it yours? Is it ours? Is that our passion? Does it consume us? You know, we all know the emptiness, the shallowness of man-made traditions. We, we all know that. We've all experienced the brokenness of misplaced devotion. Old systems and habits are really, really hard to break away from. Why? Because they bring comfort, and oftentimes our identity is rooted in those things. Our way of life is, is found in those, just embedded in those traditions. Sometimes our reputation might be wrapped up in those very things. And so what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is exposing their empty traditions regardless of how long they've held on to them and regardless of how important they are to them. He's exposing their empty tradition, their cold religion, and their misplaced devotion. That's what he's doing. And all of this during the Passover feast. It's profound. What comes to mind is Isaiah 29 verse 13 where the prophet Isaiah says, this, this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips. 
while their hearts are far from me. So the Lord, Yahweh, speaking through Isaiah the prophet. And actually, Jesus quotes this passage in Mark 7 in dealing with the traditions of men versus the commands of the Lord. And so here are a people who are drawing near with their mouth and honoring God with their lips. But their hearts, the seat of their affections and their devotion, it's far from me, God says. In verse 18, they respond to what Jesus is doing this way. What sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, what authority do you have? What do you do? Who do you think you are? And listen to what Jesus says in verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Listen, this is, it's nothing short of revolutionary. What he's saying here. He's saying that his death and his resurrection will create something new, something better. That his resurrection will will make their physical temple, the very place that he was standing, obsolete. The place of sacrifice, central to how Israel experienced atonement and worship, he was making it obsolete. Now, Remember what John said in John chapter 1, verse 29. This is what John the Baptist says about Jesus. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who does what? Who takes away the sin of the world. I I believe that John, the apostle, the disciple of Jesus who's writing this account, is helping us make some connections here. Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, on Passover, which celebrates the atoning sacrifice of God through this shed blood of a lamb, is now declaring something so revolutionary that the place of worship, the place of devotion, the place of sacrifice is no longer going to be this temple, but will be where? be replaced by what? By Jesus himself. Jesus is replacing the temple with himself. There was a restoration project going on in Jesus' day. You could have seen the scaffolding, I'm sure. Jesus wasn't there to restore the temple. He was there to replace it. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm the new temple. I'm the place of God's presence. I'm the center of your devotion and affection. I'm meant to be. And so Jesus, what, what is he doing? He, he stepped into their center, into the heart of everything they held dear, and he challenged what motivated them, what they were about in every way, the core of their being. This structure is what he's saying. This structure that you're, 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 you see with your eyes, it's been your center. It's been your devotion Your affection and your priorities have been set here. It's misplaced and broken. Your agenda, your traditions and desires have been driving you and all of it masked as faithful worship. 
The same is true today. Jesus continues to overturn tables. Jesus continues to expose misplaced devotion and affection. Jesus continues to recenter us on him again and again. What have we made worship about in our day? What if Jesus, Jesus stepped into your center, into the heart of everything you hold dear? What would he find? Are there practices in your life that need to be overturned? They're hard to see. We all have blind spots. Are there traditions that you're holding on to that really you, you need to let go, that you've held on to tighter than the commands of God itself or the word of God itself? Have you been indifferent to God's word? Is personal autonomy, moral relativism, our political ideologies or nationalistic pride, have those things become the center of your affection? What if he stepped into this place of worship, just came in, the same door you entered today? What would he say to us? After reading this story, and after considering what I've just asked us to consider, I thought to myself, you know, I think a good posture, a good response to this would be a prayer, maybe a little like this. Jesus, would you overturn every table that I've set up that should not be set up? Jesus, would you upend my life where it needs to be? Would you disrupt things, Lord? Would you root out and expose those things that have become central that shouldn't be? Would you uproot them and would you help me to see the beauty of who you are and what you've done? Jesus came to fill what is empty. He came to replace what, what is broken. And finally, he came to invite us into something new, something better. Church, the something new that Jesus invites us into is the joy of salvation, the joy of God's blessing symbolized in a wedding feast and in wine in this first narrative. And how do we receive this, this new wine? It's by faith. The wedding banquet is spread out before us and there is a place at the table for you and I. Are we enjoying this feast? Are we drawing near? He welcomes us in. The something better that Jesus invites us into is God's very presence. His very presence how? How do we enter into his presence? By faith. By faith in Jesus. The something new, the something better is Jesus himself. In verses 23 through 25, Jesus, he demonstrates an attribute that only belongs to God. I don't know if you picked up on it. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He doesn't need to hear your words to know your inward thoughts and feelings. He knows. He knows everything about you. Jesus knows all people. It's a divine attribute. He knows all people. He knows you. He knows your thoughts. He knows your struggles and temptations. He knows your fears. There's nothing that you can hide from him. 
For some, in John chapter 2 and still today, they stop at the signs. They stop at the miracles of Jesus, and because of that, their faith is misplaced. They fail to see what the signs are pointing to and what they say, what they testify about Jesus' identity and purpose. Please don't make that mistake. Please don't dismiss Jesus as simply a miracle worker or yet just an, an, another important figure or a good teacher or a prophet or something that's going to help you be a better person. Don't stop there. It goes deeper still. He went far beyond that. He came to fill what is empty. He came to replace what is broken. And he's doing it still today. He invites us into something new, something better. And so what is a wedding banquet filled with joy and celebration that suddenly runs out of wine? And a temple filled with people buying and selling have to do with a clear understanding of Jesus. Everything. If we understand these two scenes, we understand Jesus' purpose and his identity. Why he came. The Messiah. The bridegroom. The one who would begin this feast that's been anticipated for centuries. And what the Jews find, what Israel finds, is that it's not just for them, it's, it's for the world. For any and, and all who would come to Jesus by faith, who would look to Jesus as the place of God's presence, the temple itself. The one in whom we would find, what? Reconciliation and healing, forgiveness of sins the Lamb of God, the atoning sacrifice, the one the Passover itself was, was shouting about. The wedding, the Passover, the temple. Do you hear what John is saying about Jesus? It's revolutionary. It's awesome. Do you hear what John is holding up in this sign that he puts before us? Let's ask Jesus as we close here this morning, let's ask Jesus to recenter us on him. To see him for who he is, Savior, Messiah, the promised one who brings that new wine and who is himself the new temple, the place of God's presence and our only hope of, a, of, of forgiveness of sins. He invites us in. The feast has begun begun let's pray Jesus we thank you so much for who you are and what you have come to do we thank you Lord for what we see of you in John chapter 2 in these stories Lord we ask Jesus would you recenter us as a church as individuals and corporately together as a community, would you recenter our priorities, our devotion, and our affection on you? Would you uproot and overturn the tables of our lives? Would you upend our lives? Would you, Lord, do whatever you need to do in us to recenter us on what, Lord, on who you are and what you've come to do? Lord, help us to be all about you. Deepen our faith, deepen our affection, shape our lives through and through. We ask these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.